You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Alrighty, morning everyone again. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. Thumbs up if there's if there's good sound there. Um, well, some interesting verses there, um, but hopefully we'll explain all of those as we work our way through. Um, it's really good to see you. I'm really glad that you're here this morning as we jump into God's Word together. Um, if I'm being honest, I didn't expect to be preaching over Zoom again, what I kind of did a few of those last year, but here we are. Uh, but I think, if anything, it reminds me that the church is not a building or a place. Uh, church is the people gathered together in Jesus' name, and that's what we're doing. That's what this is. Uh, so church doesn't need to be where we go to or some building we enter, but church is this, and that's really special. And so I'm grateful that you're here and joining us in that. Uh, for a bit of context, uh, we're in our Glimpses of Grace series. We're exploring the theme and the concept of grace in a range of different stories throughout the Bible, both in Old Testament and the New Testament. As Dave put it early in the series, we're treating grace as if it's this diamond. You know, diamonds have different faces and different edges, and they all give us a different glimpse of the diamond as a whole. So that's what we're doing with grace. We're looking at grace in lots of different stories to get a different perspective on it. Now, so far we've covered the math of grace, grace that humbles the proud, grace for the doubter, and last week, abundant and overflowing grace. Now this week, we're looking at scandalous grace. Now, we've been in lockdown for quite some time and it is extending further. And I was thinking about how I spent most of my non-Zoom time, right, that, that free time. Now, a lot of it has been in front of the telly watching Netflix or some other streaming service. And I was thinking to myself, well, I wonder how much Netflix has been watched. So I did a bit of a search into Netflix data, and I found a website that was speaking about data from 2020 onwards, particularly from quarantine onwards. This comes from the US, but on average, the average US Netflix user would watch 3.2 hours of video per day. And that might not sound as big as you might have expected, but if you multiply that by all the US users of Netflix per month, that's over 6 billion hours of video watched. Well, like, let that, let that sink in for a bit. 6 billion hours of video watched. That's almost an hour per person on the planet. Um, that's insane, per month. Now, that tells me something. We're either very, very bored in lockdown, or we love a good story. And actually, I think both of those things are true. We're bored in lockdown, and we love good stories. Now... I love all sorts of stories, but I love a good love story. Now, I'll happily pick a romantic movie over some explosive and over-CGI'd action flick. That's just what I do. There's something about a love story. It gets you feeling different emotions. You can be laughing, you can be crying, you can be angry, frustrated, happy. And that's just within the first 30 minutes. The bread and butter, I think, of a good love story tends to revolve around two people who meet each other, but for whatever reason, it can't work out. There's something in the way, and there's some good times, there's some bad times, and eventually, they overcome this major hurdle, and in the end, they live happily ever after. 
and the final scene kind of pans out from this beautiful landscape shot where they're all together maybe hugging or kissing and there's some really cliche soundtrack going on in the background now i'll be the first to hold up my hand and say that most of these movies are utter garbage that that's just what they are but i get roped in regardless because it's a good story I love a good love story. I love seeing what's going to happen and I get invested and I want to find out how it's going to end. I get invested in the characters and I want to see if it's all going to work out and everyone's going to fall in love and be happy. Well, on first glance, you might be looking at the book of Hosea open in front of you or you've just heard those readings and you're thinking to yourself, this doesn't look like a good love story. And on face value, the book of Hosea isn't. I'm not expecting Netflix to pick up the rights for it anytime soon to make a movie off it. But if we look closer, as we're going to do today, we'll notice that Hosea actually points to and directs us towards the greatest love story there ever was and ever will be. On first glance, the book of Hosea retells the story of two broken relationships. And the first of these relationships is between Hosea and Gomer. God uses Hosea and his marriage as a metaphor for the second relationship in the book, the one between Israel and God. The lesser relationship on display through Hosea's marriage acts almost kind of as an object lesson for the greater relationship between Israel and God. So today we're going to see how these two broken relationships actually focus our eyes to the greater love story and the scandalous grace that we find within it. But Before I go any further, I just want to pray quickly for this time in God's word. So would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thanks that we can spend time in your word, learning from it and understanding it. Thank you that your word shows us and gives us glimpses of this great love story that's full of grace, full of mercy, full of hope. And I pray that as we look at that this morning, that you would give us fresh eyes to see an open mind to understand and hearts that are, that are ready to be shaped by you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get into the text of Hosea, it'd be good to have a little brief context at the book and a breakdown of how the Israelites got here. Now, to do this, we, we jump back to the start of Hosea in chapter 1. In verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Now, we learn two things here that helps us understand the book. The first is who Hosea is and his role. Hosea is a prophet. He's a messenger of God. The word of the Lord has come to him, and his role was to proclaim God's word to God's people. So that was his purpose. And so we know that the whole book of Hosea, therefore, is God's word that comes through Hosea, his messenger. And the second detail we receive in verse 1 is that there are two distinct kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Now, I love my history, and that's a bit of a product of of my upbringing and my father, who's a history teacher, but we don't have time this morning to give you a real big breakdown of the history of God's people. And maybe some of you are really grateful for that. So here's the highlight reel. God's people leave Egypt. They enter and settle in the promised land. Things are good and things go bad. God's people split into two kingdoms. Things go good for a bit then they go bad for a bit, rinse and repeat. And so when we pick up the story here in Hosea, 
things aren't great for the people of God. And our first reading that was that was read for us by Elise and Jeremy is chapter 4, and it shows us what's going on. Our first reading recounts the charge that God lays against his people. It's pretty full on, isn't it? Right? If we if we look through those verses, there's a lot happening in there. There's a lot of mess, a lot of a lot of fractured relationship. There's cursing, there's lying, there's murder, stealing adultery, bloodshed. Right? The land has dried up. It's not able to be cultivated and nothing's able to be grown because of all this mess. Right? People are accusing each other. People have rejected knowledge. It's just it's chaos. It's it's kind of this huge picture of spiritual mess in one sense where Israel have just turned away because the people of Israel are no longer living as the people of God. And if you had looked at the people of Israel, you definitely wouldn't have known they were God's chosen people because God's people were meant to be his image bearers in the world. In Exodus 19 verse 6, it says they were to be a nation of priests. But in verse 6 in chapter 4, it tells us that God rejects them as his priests. They've rejected knowledge. They've rejected God. And so he rejects them as their as his representatives in the world. It's pretty full on. This kind of once insignificant nation that kind of looked to God for victory as they were entering the promised land. Well, they've now abandoned him. There's no faithfulness. There's no love. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land, as it says in verse 1. It's a rather stark picture of the current state of Israel, isn't it? They appear to have fallen so far. But in a way, I don't think this should come as a surprise to us. Yeah, they are God's people, and there's a special relationship, covenant relationship between them. But the people of Israel are human. That that, that doesn't mean that they're let off the hook, but they're flawed and broken people. They're tainted by sin. So in one sense, it is no surprise that God's people have fallen. If we read from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, it's this sin that has damaged the relationship that we have with God. And as we look through the Bible and see different stories, we just see this constantly play out. And so when we get to Hosea and much of the rest of the book that we're not covering, well, we see a nation that's so far from God because they're people that are just tainted by sin. They're broken, they're flawed. And so they've begun worshipping other gods and idols amongst all the other mess that's going on. But we're going to skip a lot of the book of Hosea, and so we're not going to cover much of it before we jump to 14. And so I'd encourage you at some point, if you get the chance, to have a read through it and, and try and make sense of the book as a whole. But when we pick up the story in chapter 14, which Jono read out for us, we see a different picture, don't we? We see something on display, something of God, and I think we see God's grace on display. Chapter 14 opens with a call to repentance. That's the role of the the people of Israel, there to repent in verses 1 to 3. That's what Hosea is calling them to do. They're to seek forgiveness, they're to take words to the Lord and ask to be received graciously. But if you notice the rest of the verses in chapter 14, from 4 to 8, Well, that's talking about what God is going to do. That's showing us that God is going to show grace. Notice the things that he does and the things that God is going to do. He's going to heal them. He's going to love them. He's going to turn his anger from them. He's going to sustain them and grow them. 
He answers them, responds to them. He's listening to them again. He's caring for them and he reminds them that they're going to flourish and blossom and be fruitful because of him. Now, this doesn't happen instantaneously because Israel are punished for their unfaithfulness and sections of Hosea cover this judgment. But the key is that despite what Israel has done, God hasn't cast them aside. He has chosen to forgive them even though they turned their backs on him. He shows them grace by rebuilding them as a people, by restoring them and allowing them to flourish and blossom, as our reading shows us. We see that Israel is going to grow into this tree that's going to provide shade for other people to come and find find peace and, and flourish themselves. It's this beautiful picture of what Israel is going to become. And none of this happens because Israel has done anything marvelous. It's only because God gives them this gift of grace. Now, at this point, God's actions don't appear particularly scandalous. Right? You might be thinking to, to yourself, well, maybe this is just God's character. And, and that's true. God's character is grace, gracious and, and merciful and loving. But I think in order to see why this grace is so scandalous, we need to look at the minor relationship in the book of Hosea. We've seen the major relationship between Israel and God in our readings, and now we shift our focus onto Hosea and Gomer. In the first chapter of Hosea, we see an uncomfortable request by God. In verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea's marriage to Gomer and the subsequent adultery that follows was to be, in a way, a glimpse of the greater adultery of Israel against God. Now, we don't know why God asked Hosea to do this, and honestly, it's, it's kind of insane to think about, but Hosea is, is obedient. He listens to God and he says, all right, I'll do what you've asked of me. He marries Gomer and then he has three children with her. And when we pick up his story again in chapter 3, things aren't great. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. In one sense, Hosea's wife has done exactly as was expected of her. She has been unfaithful to him. After all, he married a promiscuous woman. It's not a surprise. But again, Hosea's marriage is to reflect God's relationship with Israel. This time, Hosea is to show love to his wife despite her unfaithfulness, just as God loves Israel despite theirs. Hosea is to claim her back and show love to her, despite Hosea having every good reason not to, right? But he's, again, he's obedient. He does as the Lord asks and he buys his wife back. In those few words, so I bought her, I think we see the great scandal of this action. It doesn't seem right for Hosea to redeem his wife to himself, let alone to have to pay for her. Yet this is what he does. And as I think about those words and I, and I think about this idea of, of purchasing, I'm drawn to the great hymn before the throne of God above, which in the final verse says this, my soul is purchased by his blood. So I think when we look at the story of Hosea, although we witness two messy, fractured, damaged relationships, we also see a great love story on display. 
the great love through the Bible actually shines through. It might be one of the most quoted verses, but John 3.16 is that love story. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The book of Hosea points us to the greatest scandal of grace in which God sends his only son into this world to pay the price for us, for you and me, so that we might be redeemed to God, so that our relationship to him can be restored. There's another line from that hymn that I think perfectly captures this scandalous grace. In the fourth verse of the song, it starts by saying, Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. Let me say that again. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. Because Jesus, who had and knew no sin, laid down his life on the cross, my soul, my life, which does no sin, which is broken just like the people of Israel, well, it gets to be counted as free. It means that I can stand before the throne of God confident I stand before him covered in Jesus' righteousness. That is scandalous grace. So, friends, where do we go to from here? Well, I think this story leads us to do two things. Firstly, I think it leads us to look at ourselves. Although we might read stories about the Israelites and feel rather detached from them because they're so long ago and we don't see ourselves there, I think sometimes it's helpful for us to consider what it might be like if we were the Israelites or to think of ourselves in a way as Israelites today. Because I'll be the first to say that it's easy to read these stories and to judge Israel and be like, how could they not have known? Of course they should have known. They've seen God do so much. But haven't I as well? I know I have. And so I need to catch myself because I'd be lying if I said I hadn't been unfaithful to God. For two years after high school, I turned my back on him. It's only by his grace that I've been forgiven and redeemed to live for him. So when we look at the story of Israel and their unfaithfulness, we need to acknowledge in our hearts that we too are flawed and broken people. We are tainted by sin as well. It's only when we do this that we really see the beauty of grace that comes to us through Jesus. And so the second thing I think this story leads us to do is to frequently look at the cross of Jesus and the scandalous grace that we've been shown because of it. In a moment today, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And this provides us a great opportunity to remember the great sacrifice of Jesus. But don't let these monthly moments at the Lord's table be the only time you reflect on Jesus' sacrifice and God's grace. Open the Gospels regularly and read the the stories of, of, of Jesus going to the cross and dying for you and see the grace in it. Journal about grace and pray with thankfulness for it. Listen to music that reminds you of this. Rewatch re or listen to past sermons in the series or find other sermons on grace. Whatever you do, don't forget the scandalous grace that God has shown you for it is the greatest love story that ever was and ever will be.